And welcome to a very special episode of the Fizzy Sherbet podcast. I'm Lily McLeish. I'm Josephine Start. And I'm Tamara von Werthen. And this is the very first of our Fizzy Chat sessions. The Fizzy Chat sessions are additional one-off episodes sprinkled at glorious random amongst the usual offering of short plays and interviews, where we go deep in conversation with one fascinating woman in theatre. These are longer conversations that we would have in a standard episode. And we're so excited to kick off with a wonderful Lucy Kerbel of Tonic Theatre. It was a pleasure spending time with her. We hope you love it as much as we did. Lucy Kerbel is the founder of Tonic Theatre, an initiative set up to address gender inequality in the UK theatre industry. Lucy is the author of 100 Great Plays for Women and All Change Please, a practical guide to achieving gender equality in theatre, both published by Nick Hearn Books. She is also a director of the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize for Women Playwrights. Her work in this area has been a huge inspiration for us when we set up Fizzy Sherbet, so we are delighted to welcome her onto the programme. Lucy, could you tell us a little bit more about what Tonic Theatre is and, and why you set it up? Yeah, sure. And apologies to anyone who was hoping for a play this week. Um, unfortunately, you've got me instead. Yeah, so I created Tonic about 10 years ago now, just coming up to 10 years ago. And initially it was with the aim of achieving a sea change in terms of how the theatre industry thought about and responded in regards to very historic and persistent imbalances between men and women in the theatre industry um, and that all of the work has been designed to achieve change that is very practical that is hopefully really digging into the foundations of problems rather than ever sort of surface or tokenistic um, and it's always been about really trying to underline to people what the benefits would be to the industry of ensuring that it was drawing from the full talent pool rather than just part of it. So that was where the company began about 10 years ago and we've worked with dozens of theatre organisations right across the UK and beyond and that's from the very big ones like the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company the big kind of core playhouses around the country places like Sheffield Theatres Chichester Festival Theatre, Leeds Playhouse, um, the New Woolsey, and then all sorts of different theatre organisations and colleges of all shapes and sizes, right through to youth theatre, amateur theatre. So really right across the ecology of, of the theatre industry. So we've been doing that work for just coming up to 10 years. Over the years, the focus has expanded beyond just theatre. So we now also work in opera, dance, moving into music, bit of work in television and also the focus has broadened over the years from just focusing on the situation for women alone to looking more holistically right across equality diversity and inclusion so I would say that our specialism remains the situation for women but we are looking I suppose more more broadly at the imbalances that exist and I think what we're particularly interested in at Tonic is looking at how those imbalances can sort of collide and cross over for certain people and particularly certain women and I think that the work is I think over the years where we've evolved to is a point of trying to 
work with organisations so that what they are offering are workplaces and public spaces which are inclusive of all sorts of people mm-hmm. because I think increasingly what we've learned is that if you can find a way to make a rehearsal room generally inclusive that benefits the women mm. um, if you can make a office environment inclusive of everyone that of course benefits women if you can make your youth theatre company inclusive of everyone that benefits the the girls and the young women in the company as as well as everybody and so that is sort of increasingly the the direction that we've gone in fantastic i'm just really curious straight off the bat with that and and also your name tonic which i find uh, an interesting name for that kind of umbrella work as well is it drawing on the ideas of kind of a slightly medicinal attitude towards <laughs> yeah well I mean I think it just makes people think of gin and tonic and who doesn't right, love yeah. gin and tonic you know <laughs> makes us all feel good yeah it was it was the medicinal quality it was the idea of that this is going to be a tonic for the industry funny enough when I when I set tonic up it was a really different time in terms of what was going on in, in regards to feminism we were not I don't think in 2010 we had yet moved into the current wave that we're in at the moment. It still, by and large, felt like declaring yourself to be a feminist was something that was a bit unfashionable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it also felt that it it still kind of felt okay to a lot of people to, to be a bit eye-rolly about it. And I think that that has shifted. And I think that feminism, like all movements for equality, go in it goes in waves you know it's never a linear upward line of progress and you know you only need to look at what might happen over in the US and in relation to the Supreme Court to see how easily progress that's been made can can be taken away very very quickly but I think 2010 felt like a very very different place to 2020 and I think at the time funnily enough I felt a pressure to not call tonic women's theatre something or another remember putting a lot of thought into the language that we used that it was very positive it was about refreshing rethinking reimagining it was all very very positive I mean our color our our logo is blue it's sort of quite a zippy shade of blue and I remember at the time being very aware that there was likely to be a lot of preconceptions about what tonic was trying to do and that even you know the idea and it sort of seems crazy now but even the idea of like using red in the logo would have felt you know are people going to say we're angry or we're aggressive or this is negative because often the assumption was that when I would pitch up at places I was sort of coming in to heckle people or to point the finger at them or to make them feel bad about themselves and the approach that Tonic has always taken is, is essentially saying to other people how can we help we assume that you want to see change we know that you'd like to see an industry that is as effective as productive as creative as possible brilliant we want that too we want to work with you on it how can we help mm-hmm. and then it's always been about collaborating and and working hand in hand with with organizations with individuals who want to achieve change so i think that was in part behind calling it tonic rather than women's something or another which you know i have absolutely no shame in the word women but it was at the time it felt like there would have been a lot of unfortunately negative preconceptions that other people might have made and that might have impacted their interest in working with us i mean now that we have expanded our focus purely beyond looking at the situation for women i'm very very happy <laughs> that, that 
<laughs> that I happen to go for a title like tonic, which you, you can take in the multiple of directions. Um, so in hindsight, that was quite a good, quite a good move. Not that I realised it at the time. It's really clever, I think, because it does blend that kind of the serious with the fun. And that's exactly, you know, that's exactly the right angle. Yeah. Yeah. That's us, tonic, blending the serious with the fun. That might be our new tagline. Yeah. I'm also so quite interested to hear what else you think has changed because we are talking a decade now yeah. um, and do you feel that there has been a marked improvement in gender equality within the industry uh, or has it improved in some areas in which ways has it improved mm. and mm. also what are the challenges we still face now especially with lockdown yeah, I mean, I suppose, so let's, so let's first of all go back to February 2020, because I think it, everything still feels very unknown and we're in such a weird period at the moment, it feels difficult to talk about the theatre industry as it is at the moment, because so many people are being forced to take a break mm -hmm. from it. I think, yeah, I would say that where theatre was in February 2020 is profoundly different to where it was in February 2010. I would say that back in 2010, I feel like a theatre could announce a season of work that just had no representation of women in, in it whatsoever or in a really, really, you know, very basic, at a very basic level. And it either wouldn't be noticed or it wouldn't be remarked on. Or if it was remarked on, it would be women amongst themselves having a bit of a sort of a gripe, quite, quite understandably and quite rightly. And that is not the case now and you know I found that the situation where the National Theatre sort of announced that season maybe a, a year or so ago now which sort of created a lot of furore because the representation of women wasn't considered to be sort of up to the standard that the National had identified for itself and while I think it was probably quite a, a unfortunate incident I think in some ways it was a demonstration of progress because it was a conversation that happened very publicly and, and, and actually, you know, looking at that entire year of the Nationals programming rather than just the segment that they unfortunately announced in a press conference without maybe quite thinking it through, there was a very good level of representation of women working as lead creatives, playwrights, but also stories about women and far more varied stories about women. And so I think that... I think things have changed in that way. I think that there has been progress more in some fields than others. I know when we began, we really focused on creative teams and playwrights and performers because that sort of felt like the most visible part of what the public engaged with. You go and you sit in an auditorium and you watch a play and you're watching certain people on the stage, you're hearing words that have been written by a person and you're sort of seeing those words interpreted, you know, lit you're hearing the sound design, you're seeing the direction that's been created by, by a group of people. And so that felt like the first area to focus on. So we really went hard on that. I, I think as a consequence, there definitely were very productive shifts forward in terms of the volume of women moving into those roles or being given work, being given the opportunity to work in those roles. You know, and so things like 50-50 casting policies that was not in place back in 2010 when we began. I think that there has been less progress in some of the other fields, technical theatre. There's still a lot of work to be done there, although there is some, you know, some individuals and organisations who are really pushing for change there. 
And I think that in terms of administration in theatre, which has traditionally employed a lot of women, I think there's a lot of women there. I still question whether they're always working in environments that are enabling them to thrive and that really understand the needs of their lives. So I think, you know, yes, progress is a long way to go. I think also, of course, it's always that thing of acknowledging that there are complexities that exist for certain groups within society and theatre can't impact them. You know, the theatre industry can't reverse a decade of austerity, which is what we have also seen over the lifetime of Tonic. Um, and we were created just as the coalition government was coming in. So we, we've sort of run in parallel tracks with the, the Tories being back in power for a decade. And oh, we know that austerity has disproportionately impacted women, but we also know it's disproportionately impacted certain groups of women far more than others. And while I, you know, the theatre industry, unfortunately, can't impact government policy, it can't reverse the closure of Shaw Start centres, it can't open up arts education, even though it's, it's trying as hard as it can. I think that it, but what it does need to do is it does need to reflect on its working practices to ensure that it, it is somewhere that is, is open and as inclusive for as many people as possible. And that might be about reviewing how we do things in acknowledgement of the fact that people's lives have changed. Um, it's not as easy now to get cheap rent in one of the major cities and kind of work for next to nothing in theatre and be able to kind of go back on the dole in between gigs and, you know, get cheap transport and all the things that I think were still in play some years ago, a lot of that has gone. That was a very long-winded answer, wasn't it? And I can't no, entirely remember the question, but it was, it was about, I think you're asking tomorrow what's, what's changed in yes. 10 years. And, and also, my, part of my question was also about lockdown. Do you feel lockdown is going to have an adverse effect on women in the industry more than men? Because often if there's an economic downturn that does affect women more than, than men, I mean, do you feel that there is a big challenge coming out of lockdown for um, and, and more need for organisations? organizations such as tonic and also what we're trying to do with fizzy sherbet yeah absolutely i mean again like austerity we know that the societal shifts prompted by covid we know is impacting women more so accordingly the in any industry must recognize those things and and make shifts to how they to how they operate and i i think I mean, theatre is a funny one because there's so many women in it. I think it's really easy for the, the challenges for women to not be seen because we often think about equality and diversity and inclusion through the lens of numbers. And because women make up often just over half of the arts workforce, it's very easy to sort of go, oh, they're, they're through the doors, so everything is absolutely fine. But it, you have to also look at what the experiences that people are having and what level of seniority they're reaching and how much they're being paid and how much resource they're able to access. You have to look at those things as well, which is a, it, it is a tough job, but that's where the nuance exists. Mm -hmm. I think that it's probably too early to predict what's going to happen for women in the industry, because when we are or are not able to reopen our theatres in a, in a meaningful manner, it is, that's going to play a huge role so, so I think we don't yet know how disrupted the industry is going to be and we won't know that for some time. I think all we can know is that, yeah, it ain't going to be great for women and that has to be part of whatever the recovery is 
for the industry. I feel that the thing that kind of makes me feel a bit more optimistic is I feel that at the moment, actually, the quality of work that we're doing with organisations is, is really high in that I think everyone's just got more time to think at the moment. Um, you know, our lives have been disrupted and I think all of us have probably had to stop and just reflect on, on what we're doing with our lives in, in many ways and what kind of what we're doing with our planet and how we work and capitalism and, and, and all of it. And one of the biggest challenges that I've always experienced with people who work in the performing arts is everybody is so insanely busy the whole time because often people are trying to do far more than they <laughs> are kind of resourced to achieve. So people kind of rush around the whole time and it's very easy to kind of get from one end of the week to the next without stopping and thinking. And, you know, work around equality, diversity and inclusion requires thoughtfulness. It requires you to pause what you're doing and listen to other people's experiences. It requires you to stop and try and practice empathy and step into someone else's shoes. It requires you to pause and reflect on how you do things and imagine what they could be like if they were done differently. And then you need to actually put in the work of the kind of the logistical planning, uh, the nuts and bolts of how, you know, we've imagined the vision of what we could be now. How do we actually make it work? So all of it requires thoughtfulness. Mm-hmm. And while I would say that theatre and the performing arts has many brilliant things to it, I would not always say that thoughtfulness is, is one of those because we're all rushing around the whole time, like sort of headless chickens trying to do so much. And there has been a reduction in the rush. I think there are some people who, of course, have been, you know, insanely busy and, you know, under huge amounts of pressure in terms of trying to keep organisations afloat. But broadly, I would say that when we've been running training delivering workshops all the work we've been doing since we came back off furlough in June has felt like there is a deeper engagement from the people that we're working with and and that feels really positive Mm. Mm. I'm really interested in, in yeah what you're saying about thoughtfulness because in a way I suppose what tonic does in in kind of relating to venues and and organizations is it sort of outsources thoughtfulness some potentially in that they can (laughs) kind of can you think for us or or help us think help us to be thoughtful and I was just wondering how do you I mean I'm sure there isn't a cookie cutter you know one size fits all thing for every organization but what are some ways some practical ways in which tonic kind of goes into organizations and says this is these are some ways that you might think more broadly or might kind of enact something differently here Mm. so quite often we'll start with something quite specific for an organization because you always need to start somewhere so it might be that an organization will say that we've noticed this about ourselves we've noticed that of all the writers we commission we're more likely to actually take the plays by men through to production so we've noticed that about ourselves and we want to know a bit more about why that might be Or an organisation might say, we want to, I don't know, create a better offer for women artists um, who are, I don't know, I'm plucking something out of the air now, who are doing uh, artist development work. We want to get better at doing artist development work that, that more accurately responds to the needs and wants of women. How can we do that? So there's a sort of a specific starting point and from there it's i suppose we might operate as a sort of an outside pair of eyes so you know it's 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 sort of a bit like anything like if you said that i don't know i have a problem in my relationship you you're not always the best 
placed person to, to be able to understand why you understand the feelings and you can see the net result but you're not always able to really analyze why that is so i suppose if a theater company is saying we, we don't quite understand why we're less likely to take plays by women through to production we might help them analyze that process step by step in quite a granular way and go right how do you do everything from initial coffee meeting all the way through to green lighting something for the stage what happens every step along the way and helping them to spot within that where are the moments where women not every woman but women are more likely to fall through the gaps and where are the moments within that where men and again not every man but are more that men are more likely to receive a certain boost or a certain advantage or a certain privilege in the way that that process is operating and then looking at that at how you redesign that process and we might also do work i suppose we might speak to a load of playwrights like we might run a series of sort of roundtable discussions with playwrights about their experiences of being commissioned what in a commission process has worked really well for them what's been very difficult when have they felt supported when not and we might look at that from a sort of a gendered perspective and just begin to notice themes and recurrent ideas that are presented and then feed that back to the company as part of their thinking because you know, we, we can have quite frank conversations with people about how they experience work because we're not their bosses. It's much, much harder if you're an employer, um, whether that's your, about your staff or whether it's about the freelancers you work with to really get, to really have a really honest conversation with them because there's a power dynamic there. And then I suppose we do a whole load of work around sort of educating people about inequalities, why they exist, where they've come from, you know, understanding, and that's everything from unconscious bias through to structural inequalities. So also sort of understanding the, 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 the bigger context for why there are inequalities, because otherwise there can be that thing where a company goes, okay, well, we'll just start doing this. But if they don't understand what the problem was in the first place, if they don't understand why they had an imbalance initially, any work that they do um, to respond isn't going to work. I thought, I thought it was interesting what you said, Josephine, about um, outsourcing the thinking. And, and to a great extent, that is what we, what we do. I think where it hasn't worked sometimes in the past is when I've felt like, you know, an executive director or an artistic director almost wants me to come in with a USB stick that contains equality, diversity and inclusion on it and like plug it into the the mainframe of their organization and then it's just kind of magically done and it's like no 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 you, i can't do that for you you have to actually sit down shut up listen and then we might be able to make some progress but uh, until you're willing to build that time into your schedule you, you're not going to make meaningful change so i think that sometimes has been the, the tension that's existed I was just wondering, because I'm uh, I'm based in Germany at the moment, and I was just thinking, you know, it would be so amazing if you sort of <laughs> started working internationally as well and, yeah. you know, had a sort of branch out and what that would be like, because I imagine that probably in different organisations, what is in within the DNA of the building, it was probably quite different. For instance, I could imagine it's quite different in film to opera to theatre. I could yeah. imagine the sort of biases or just the structures of the hierarchies are quite what whatever is within the great you know the dna of that building or that institution will be quite different and i was just sort of thinking i wonder what it would be like if you started doing this your work here in germany with artistic directors and just yeah. what you might encounter have you ever sort of thought about doing so we've done a, we've done a bit of work in theater just small amounts in sweden which is very interesting um because sweden are kind of like you know, far ahead of the, like most other countries in the world on gender equality. So that was fascinating when 
they sort of reached out to us a, a couple of the big theatres in Sweden and that was after Me Too when we were doing work in response to that. I, we, we tend to work more in Europe when it comes to opera um, because obviously opera is a far more international art form and it's it's really interesting because there you do rub up against the sort of the local differences in terms of you know what what a government puts into place around equality and then how that impacts the performing arts and also sort of i guess local kind of cultural differences and then of course there's the differences between say an art form like opera compared to theatre where opera is far more focused on the heritage and this very sort of careful passing down of these sorts of beautiful operas that are like the equivalent of a Fabergé egg and it gets passed from one generation to the next and of course there is new opera and there are new productions but a big chunk of it is is also about tradition and the curation of that tradition I think theatre is far more sort of a lot more scrappy. You know, I think it's up for, I think there is less concern about theatre being broken. You know, I think we've, it's, it's always been reinvented and reconfigured and people will always, I don't think there's a preciousness around theatre. I think we recognise it's, it's pretty resilient as an, as an art form. And so therefore it is, it's always felt with our work that most people have been quite up for having a go at rebuilding how things are done some of the other art forms which have more of a kind of classical component that's been less the case I'd say mm, that's yeah. interesting about resilience and just you mentioned me too just very briefly and I'd just love to ask because that's me too is it's it's three mm. years ago now and I'm wondering do you think me too impacted tonic in any significant way and and also maybe your thoughts on how it's impacted the industry now three years on yeah I mean um I have really, really mixed feelings because I, I have mixed feelings because obviously there was so much noise around it. When I look at the concrete changes that have happened, I'm concerned that they're not enough. And there have been some good interventions. I think that there's more of a culture now of sort of having a written statement on the wall of the rehearsal room. And it's great that Equity produced that statement and were very clear about what they expected that their members should or shouldn't experience in the workplace. And there was some good work that went on. I don't know how thorough or deep the industry's response was. And I think time will sort of tell as, as, as to how much of a shift there was. And, and I don't know, maybe it might be more of a sort of a slow burn situation. I think there has, certainly has been a shift. And there are certain things that... I think there has been a shift, I think, in terms of certain individuals behavior I think would not be tolerated now and that is very good and I think that there is more of a, an implied code of conduct now I think I don't know whether I hear me too still being referenced in conversations as I move between organizations in the way that I had perhaps hoped I would at the time, there was lots of conversation about it and there was some good work and some really excellent work done in terms of giving people a space to discuss it. I don't know to what extent that has manifested into really tangible commitments to change, but time might tell and who knows, it might be a slow burn. At the same time, it was really difficult. I remember that period and... I did a huge amount of thinking at the time and trying to work out what Tonic's response should be because the, the 
issue just seemed so huge and overwhelming and for a very tiny charity with absolutely no core funding whatsoever it was like god how on earth do we how on earth do we tackle this for us what we decided we would do our intervention would be that we would create a program of work that we would do in drama schools because across all of the conversations drama schools just kept coming up again and again and again and that's not to say that the problem only existed in drama schools of course it didn't but rather that drama school is such a formative time for anybody who goes through that kind of training and it seemed that there had historically been patterns of behavior or expectations set into place there and that that meant that yet another generation was stepping into the industry expecting things to happen in a certain way and I'd done my own stint when I used to direct you know working in various drama schools and I'd always done a lot of work with young people and I just sort of wondered I I sort of felt like actually what we'd been sort of implying to young people for years and how we were teaching them was that the cost of a career in the performing arts is that eventually you're going to have to put up with something that doesn't feel acceptable to you And if you don't put up with it, there's a queue of people behind you who will. And I really began to question after me too whether we should have been teaching young people that and whether we ought to. Because actually, that's not logical. You don't have to sort of put up with something that feels horrible or, or watch someone else go through something that doesn't feel right. I think we've been teaching it as an inevitability of working in the performing arts. And what that means is you then then send a, a new another cohort of young people out into the industry who are expecting this to be an inevitability and maybe braced for it to be an inevitability. So then when it comes along, they kind of go, oh, okay, well, this is the moment. And yeah, I just have to go with the tide because if I don't, I'm going to be out. And I just got really interested in whether we could teach them something different, which was about saying you don't have to go along with this and you do have choices in that moment and you can have some tools that you can use at that moment now that's not a tool to say that the onus has to be on the victim or the potential victim obviously it's it's the people who are using their power in an unhealthy way so we were also working with staff in drama schools to to help them reflect on power and what it is and and how you can use it in, in healthy and unhealthy ways but I think I was very interested in in the idea that if you can get whole cohorts of students stepping out into the industry who will not feel it's okay to just go with the flow with something that doesn't feel uncomfortable you're sort of cutting off the oxygen supply of people who thrive on that because we know there are some people who part of what's what's in it for them about working in a field like the performing arts or 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 doing certain jobs where you do automatically have power over people part of what's what's in it for them is they enjoy the feeling of of maybe misusing that power against other people in whatever format that that might take whether that's sexual whether that's bullying whatever it is and sort of cutting off that supply of willing young things who will just sort of feel that they have to accept that that felt like a, a major step so that's something that we began doing with drama school so we created I worked with um Gina Abelin's who had her own sort of experiences um, prior to Me Too. And together she and I created this thing called the Empower Programme that we've been running with drama schools. And when we were building Empower, initially we spent a lot of time speaking to people who had been through drama schools and asking them what they wish they had been told or what they wish they had had the opportunity to explore 
when they were there, which only, I think the interesting thing about so much of this is it's often only years later that in hindsight, you look back at yourself as an 18 year old or as a 21 year old and you kind of go, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that at the time or I didn't understand that at the time. So it's what we're doing in the work has been informed by many conversations with people who have been through that system and it feels good. So good and such important work. And I think something that we all have experienced as well, those situations where we felt that there was in one way or another an abuse of power and especially as women working in the industry. I wanted to also ask you, Lucy, because now um, you celebrate 10 years of Tonic Theatre. Could you just tell us a little bit about what part of your work you feel proudest of? I mean, for for me personally, it's probably our platform scheme, although in some ways that's quite different to a lot of the work we do in that it's not directly with with an organisation. But the platform plays are a series of new plays that we commission. We publish them in partnership with Nick Herm Books, who Tamara works for. Um, Hello. (laughs) And and, uh, there are now seven plays in the series. All of the plays are written to be performed by young companies of actors. So for school groups, youth theatres, university drama societies, drama schools, they're all written for big casts and they all have all female or mainly female casts. And that was because we, one of the first things that I did when I began Tonic was we did a a sort of a nationwide research study to try and understand situation for girls and young women who were taking part in youth drama and when I say youth drama I mean that's an umbrella term for all kinds of extracurricular drama activity and what we found was that the majority of young people who were taking part in youth drama were girls or young women but when it came to the scripts that they were using the vast majority of the roles were written to be performed as men or boys and it just seemed like there was this awful mismatch between who was kind of showing up week after week to, you know, the village hall or a community centre and, and the level of opportunity for them. And then speaking to a lot of young people who, who were doing, taking part in youth drama or who, or adults who had as young people also realising the massive emotional and social impact of that imbalance and also looking at the quality of the roles i remember sort of running parallel focus groups with groups of young men who were doing youth drama and groups of young women and the the young men because they were this kind of precious commodity in youth drama they they spoke about sort of an escalation of confidence you know they'd go and audition to be in the school play and of course they'd land a lead role and then that would make them feel great because they'd have that amazing experience and they felt really trusted by their drama teacher and then that gave them the confidence to audition for their local youth theatre and they got in there and then they tried the county youth theatre and they got in there and and then they were very articulate about how they then took those that confidence and those skills into their first jobs. You know, I remember a young man talking about how he'd got a job on the checkout at a supermarket and within a few weeks he'd been promoted to the customer service desk because he knew how to talk to people. So that was what I heard from the young men overwhelmingly. The focus groups I would run with young women, it was like the opposite. They would talk about this gradual decrease in their confidence. So it was the opposite direction that they'd go and they'd audition or they'd try and be part of something and they either wouldn't get cast at all or if they were, they'd sort of be at the back of the chorus or you know I heard so much of oh you're not allowed to audition or you're not allowed to be in the play until you're in the sick form or you know oh I had to share the role with another actress because there weren't enough female roles and there were too many girls and and the and so the the girls were quite kind of aware that this meant they got a a raw end of the deal but 
what I found fascinating is that without exception in the, the, the focus groups that we were running with young women at some point, one of the girls would say something along the lines of, but you know, you've just got to be grateful. Even if you're given one line or, you know, you just got to be grateful just you're being allowed to stand on that stage. And it was kind of so pitiful that the girls, you know, they, 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 they really, and then they would all kind of rouse themselves and try and be kind of cheerful about being given the crumbs from the table. And it made, so much sense to me than thinking about the experiences of myself and, and my peers on the drama degree that I did and then thinking about myself and, and colleagues and peers in the industry and I think that we we're teaching young people very early that you know un, unless you are a boy or a man or are willing to sort of dress up and pretend to be one there is no space for you on a public stage you do not have a voice we don't want to we don't want to hear from you and that, of course, sets all sorts of um, stuff into motion in young people's minds, regardless of their gender. And I thought, again, let's just disrupt that. Let's stop another generation of young people going through youth drama and expecting less for, for the girls and the young women. So the plays are a really, I think, hopeful, but also very, very tangible attempt from tonic to disrupt that cycle the plays have been hugely successful so like i said there are seven out now the, the most recent two uh, bright young things by georgia christie and heavy weather by lizzie nunnery came out as ebooks in the summer they are now finally with us as books now that we can actually physically get books again um they came out last week but this across all of them they i think we worked out that a platform play is performed somewhere in the world once every oh, I'm gonna get this right, I think it's at once every five days which wow. is a huge achievement and they really have traveled around the world so they're being performed all over the UK but we also know that they're they're being performed far more broadly around the world we also know that even more broadly than that they're being purchased not we don't know about performances or maybe they're doing it without getting their licenses but yeah because it does happen sometimes <laughs> i hear but you know we know that we've sent sets of 30 off to various countries so around the world so we know that they're also being looked at in classes and 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 worked on in rehearsals and i think that it's an achievement as well in terms of new writing i think in this country we're really great at supporting new writing i think we then have a tendency to allow play to go on once and then it never sees the light of day again with these plays what we have done is rather than us producing so tonic has never staged a production of the platform play because while that would be really fun for us and i'd have a great time directing it you know if, if we were to stage a play where we're based which is in london that's not going to make a dent for a young person who's living in leicester or dumfries they're not even going to know it's on so instead what we've been doing is trying to target our energies on getting the plays out there into schools into youth theatres so that they're performed by groups everywhere and i think that's probably been a better use of our limited resources than our stage in the plays ourselves yes definitely and i have to say because i look after the performing rights for nick and books so i have been licensing those plays full disclosure but um <laughs> they have been the, the reactions you get from drama teachers and from youth theater practitioners all over they're so touching they're so relieved and happy that these plays exist because it's exactly what they need, what they look for all the time, and they can't find it um, in the normal offerings that are out there. So yeah. to finally have something to give to all those brilliant young women to perform in and to have a moment in the light is exactly what they're looking for. So it, it's really meeting 
uh, need. And I think that's, that is really something to be very proud of. And in the last 10 years to, to just think of the number of young women who, mm. who have just had that little bit more confidence by having been in a platform play, I think. Yeah. I think what you were saying just about, you know, the acceptance of there is just one line, but you know, that is just what it is. And I'm going to sort of, this is okay. I can, I can do it. I can do this with this one mm. line. It's so heartbreaking, but also something so, yeah, that we're very ready to accept a situation forgiven and that almost a powerlessness around how to change that. But I think something that you're doing in Tonic and, you know, the, the thing that really inspired us to set up Fizzy Sherbet was to say, no, we have, a, it might be a tiny, tiny bit of power in the industry, which is yeah. as small as directors and writers and actors. But we can, with that tiny little bit of power, we can also set something up and we can yeah. try to say, look, we're going to make a platform that just supports women writers and uses women directors. And actually we can say that within our production companies, we're going to make sure that we're always on a 50-50 gender balance between our creative team members or, you know, whatever that is that we're looking at. We can, we can look at those things and be thoughtful, like you were saying. about yeah. how we. Yeah. And I think, I think what you're saying, Lily, is absolutely it in terms of any of us that want to see change. It's, rather than putting your energy into saying oh someone else needs to sort this it's it's also reflecting on what can I do and that might only be limited and you might have a really limited amount of time and energy and power but it's I suppose yes really thinking what can I do what's the dent that I can make and you know with tonic I no one kind of mandated me to do this no one said can you can you can you set this up can you do this work no one gave me a chunk of funding to get started with it it was just me sort of going oh should we just try and do something a bit different and it's quite and, and for me it's really obviously spiraled I'm I, I'm probably a bit of an outlier in that it's ended up being my full-time job and I think for most people it you know they want to they want to still be a writer or a director and maybe be doing some of this work as part of it but I think don't wait for the invitation to do it because the invitation will never come no one is ever gonna ask you to to do this or give you permission to do it you've kind of got to step in and do that and that of course is a is a lot easier for some people than others but I think whatever any of us can do it does make a change cumulatively uh, across all of us and even when it can sometimes feel like a really long road and sometimes things can feel a bit hopeless but I think it's it's staying confident that some of us you know I think there are changes and like Tamara said even if just one young woman has a bit more confidence in herself or, or, or learns to ask a bit more of the world from doing a platform play then I think that's kind of job done for 10 years worth of work. <laughs> And I, I think it's also worth saying for all of our listeners out there that um, you don't have to set up a gender equality theatre company. It, there's also little ways in which you can make change. Of course. It's, it's about which tickets you buy, which shows you see, you know, how you engage on Twitter. How, there are lots of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, they might be little micro changes, but they, I think even doing micro changes feel it feels good because then you can actually go okay I'm doing something about this I'm not just feeling very upset or downbeat about this I'm doing as much as I can do and that might be like tomorrow says something small like going I'm going to buy a ticket for this production rather than that production I'm going to support this work I'm going to listen to a fizzy sherbet podcast that's what I'm going to spend my time doing while I'm walking the dog or doing the washing up 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for coming to talk to us, Lucy. It's been Pleasure. really, really brilliant. I, I just wanted to ask what we ask everyone on the programme. Are there any women in the theatre or elsewhere, alive or dead, that you find um, have been an inspiration for you? Oh gosh, so many, and I can't I can't name anyone because I'd be in trouble if I've not named others. I mean, at, at Tonic, every year we do an awards ceremony where we celebrate amazing women who are changing the face of theatre as well as productions that are really shifting the dial in terms of representation of women or, t- or telling women's stories. And there are so many people that we've given awards to over the last few years, and, and there are so many women within that group who I have huge respect for. So, um, yeah. That's brilliant. Look up the Tonic Awards, everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been really, really brilliant. And um, yeah, see you soon. Pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is edited by Julian Starr and Lily McLeish with intro music by Jane Dixon. For more info on Fizzy Sherbet and for tips on how to help support new writing by women and on how to contribute your own play to one of our future podcast series, please visit our gorgeous website, fizzysherbetplays.com.